Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, July 7th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The ongoing market downturn for biopharma is now affecting privately funded biotech. Our colleague Allison DeAngelis dug into those troubles affecting startups and the VCs that back them, and she joins us to discuss. And we're also going to chatty Cathy about this week's news, including a surprising FDA plot twist for a closely followed ALS drug, a second shot at a treatment for fatty liver disease, and of course, a COVID update. But first, a word about an award-winning podcast from STAT. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust of the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Culico takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. It wasn't too long ago that the next big gold mine for drug companies was a fatty liver disease called NASH, which was surprisingly prevalent and possibly reversible by this whole host of new medicines in the pipeline. In recent years, we have seen roughly all of them fail, uh, with the conceivable exception of one from a company called Intercept Pharmaceuticals. And just this week, we got news from Intercept that they may yet win FDA approval for that drug. Adam, what happened? Right. Yeah. So Intercept uh, Pharmaceuticals said this week that they had done a reanalysis of uh, of a large clinical trial involving uh, an experimental treatment for fatty liver disease. It's called NASH, as you said. The drug is called OCA, and it and it achieved the the primary efficacy goal uh, of the study, and that they are now going to resubmit that drug to the FDA. Um, and I say resubmit because they actually submitted it uh, already to the FDA once. Uh, once before, that was back in 2020. And in June of 2020, the FDA had rejected the drug basically for reasons of, of reliability of their data. Um, the FDA looked at the data and thought that um, the liver biopsy scans that they had submitted were uh, maybe not reliable, particularly given the side effects of this drug. So the company had to go back and reanalyze the data, which they just did this week. Um, and it essentially confirmed, uh, it confirmed the benefit um, that the drug has mainly on uh, improvements in uh, in a fibrosis score, basically reduction in sc- liver scarring in people who have NASH. And, and as a result of that, yes, the company is going to resubmit for approval. So it's an interesting situation because obviously the good news is that 
in doing the kind of analysis the FDA wanted to see, the drug still showed a benefit such that it met the primary endpoint and and may be approvable. The I wouldn't say bad news, but the other thing to remember is that the efficacy data we saw years ago from the initial analysis didn't exactly blow people away in terms of the benefit that the drug had uh, in context of the side effects that you mentioned, which I think were cause for some alarm among independent experts and, and conceivably the FDA given their decision. So, while this is this definitely clears the way for Intercept to move forward after many years basically on pause, it's by no means a guarantee that the agency will agree with their take on this being an approvable drug. Oh, yeah. I think that's that's right, Damien. You know, I think, uh, you know, if they do submit for approval, and I'm assuming the FDA brings this in front of an advisory panel, you know, it's going to be a really interesting discussion debate about the benefits and risks of this drug. You know, it, it does what it's supposed to do in that it um, significantly reduces uh, liver fibrosis, the scarring of the liver. Although, you know, when you talk to some physicians, they they felt like, like you mentioned, they felt like the the actual benefit for patients is kind of modest, particularly when it comes to the side effects. And the main side effect of this drug is really intense itching. Uh, about uh, just over half of the patients who res- who were treated with this drug, again, it's called OCA, um, experienced this severe skin itch. Um, and patients discontinue the drug because of that. Um, there are some other, uh, you know, potentially worrisome side effects as well. So, you know, anytime the FDA considers a drug for approval, you know, you have to you, you weigh the benefits versus the risk. And I think with this drug, um, you know, that will be uh, an interesting debate to watch eventually, and um, we'll see what happens whether or not you know the FDA ultimately does approve it. So speaking of interesting FDA conversations, our friends at Biogen and ASI had news this week, which is that lecanemab, their next treatment for Alzheimer's disease after Aduhelm, uh, was granted, well, basically the FDA accepted their application for an accelerated approval for lecanemab, which means that they could conceivably win FDA approval, as Aduhelm did, based on the drug's ability to reduce plaques in the brain, not necessarily its effect on the actual symptoms of Alzheimer's disease or in slowing the decline that patients experience. Similar kind of good news, bad news situation in that, yeah. you know, the, the FDA established a precedent with Aduhelm that a drug could be approved based on reduction of these plaques. However, that precedent seemed to anger roughly 99% of the living world. <laughs> and such, you would assume that lecanemab could win approval based on that precedent. But as the Home experience taught us, that approval is not very useful commercially, scientifically, reputationally. So, it is kind of a hurry up and wait situation. Although what's curious is the decision date that the FDA gave them is January 6, 2023, um, <laughs> which that's not the interesting part is that date, but uh, they expect to have phase three data on actual, you know, hard endpoints of cognitive decline this fall. So at least the top line results of that phase three trial will be known by the FDA and its advisors when they are considering whether to grant an accelerated approval based on plaque reduction to this drug. So we're headed for a weird situation. We definitely are. And, you know, I'll, I'll note that, you know, Meg has not even gone a week and here we are talking about <laughs> Alzheimer's and Biogen once again. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you said, you know, I, I, I sort of thought of this news this week, you know, the acceptance of the Lacanumab, uh submission as kind of a regulatory box checking exercise because, you know, look, the at the end of the day, 
that drug uh, is going to live or die based on the readout of the phase three study, which is coming, you know, this quarter, right? I mean, I just put together uh, our scorecard of Q3 events, clinical trial results and stuff. And and that's coming up, you know, probably in the September timeframe. Um, that's huge, right? And, and if that if that study works, uh, you know, without any kind of uh, hitches or voodoo or whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, then I think the drug is getting approved. Uh, but if it doesn't, then I think that this application that's already submitted and the, and the data that they've already submitted to the FDA that are sort of technically under review right now just won't won't pass muster. Staying on the topic of thorny FDA discussions, we spent some time on this podcast talking about Amelix Pharmaceuticals and their potential treatment for ALS, which was the subject uh, of an FDA advisory committee meeting fairly recently. But then we got news that that won't be the last advisory committee hearing about this drug. What happened? Yeah, this is a pretty interesting plot twist in the Amelix FDA saga that, you know, now the FDA is basically bringing back this advisory panel for a second time to review some new data on Amelix's ALS drug. Um, you'll recall back in March at the first panel, the FDA was pretty critical of the drug and and it seemed like they were looking for excuses not to approve it. Um, they did get um, the panel members to uh, agree and, and sort of vote against a recommendation for approval, but the vote was close, right? It was six to four, so that there was clearly some people uh, on that panel, these outside experts who thought that the drug should be approved. After that happened, uh, Amlex has submitted more data to the FDA, like supportive data to show that this drug slows the progression of ALS. Uh, FDA extended the review and now is bringing back, uh, you know, basically is going to reconvene this advisory panel to to debate the merits of the drug again. Um, I've been doing this a long time, Damien, you've been doing this a long time. I don't, I can't recall uh, a time when the FDA held two advisory panels for a drug in the same review cycle. I, I, so uh, it's, you know, reading the tea leaves here, uh, I guess you could say, you know, that there's a lot of debate internally inside the agency about what to do about this drug and they want to get some uh, outside input. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, the when they extended the review time, just some of the other kind of machinations of this process, it was tempting to read into it as the FDA, A, wants to approve this product, but feels like the supporting evidence leaves some wiggle room and so they want as much kind of cover from their advisors as possible. Or B, they want to reject this product, but know it will be, there'll be a huge backlash to it from the ALS patient community. It's uh, approved conditionally in Canada, which is very close to the United States. And that kind of sets the stage for even more criticism of the FDA. And thus, they were looking for more cover from their advisors to not get away with, but to maybe soften the blow of rejecting this product, which they may or may not want to do. Or the third thing, which is that they really are undecided on this and that the evidence is compelling, if incomplete, which I think everybody kind of agrees on. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, the, the backdrop for this is that unlike uh, Aduhelm or some other situations we've seen this way, the confirmatory trial that the FDA would really want to see is already underway and will have data in the relatively near future, so, which is kind of the backstop for any decision that they make. But then, you know, in the foreground are ALS patients and patient advocates who are very vocal about demanding that that this treatment be made available to them. So it, it'll be an interesting situation. Yeah, and I think uh, you know you bring up that confirmatory study, and I think that's really important. You know, I I've, I I wrote a column a couple weeks ago. You know, basically I, I predicted, or I think that the FDA will 
uh, approve this drug, they'll find a way to do it. And I think one of the reasons that they will do it is because there is this confirmatory study, this large phase three study. Data are coming in 2024, right? So it's not that far off. It's not a situation like it was with Biogen mentioning them again and Adjuhelm where, you know, Biogen was going to take nine years to do their <laughs> confirmatory study, right? I mean, like, so you will have like a definitive uh, take, a definitive uh, evidence uh, whether this drug actually works or not relatively soon. And I think that could, um, that sort of works in Amelix's favor. Um, so switching topics, uh, lastly, we mentioned uh, COVID update. Damien, what happened this week? Right. COVID-19 still still, still around. I, <laughs> I think <laughs> listeners of this podcast will know that we relied on Meg heavily to keep the show on top of permutations of the pandemic. What will become clear as I try to replicate her work is that we also relied on her to keep us personally abreast of what was happening. I know. You, you, and, I, you and I have to all, all of a sudden educate ourselves on all things COVID because we don't have Meg around. It's terrifying. So, I mean, a few things this, this week. Something that people probably saw coming is that BA5, the subvariant of Omicron, has become the dominant subvariant in the US, according to the CDC. It had previously been kind of neck and neck between BA4 and BA5. I don't know why I'm describing this in sort of sports terms. This is horrible. Um, but but that's something that has emerged, which you know changes some of the calculations as people approach treatment and, and guidance for vaccination as we head into the fall, which we've discussed before. One thing I thought was interesting this week is the FDA expanded the basically realm of who can prescribe Paxlovid, the oral treatment from Pfizer, to include pharmacists. It had previously just been uh, doctors, nurses, and physician assistants, which ostensibly should widen access to the drug. We've heard of many patients having to scramble, um, trying to obtain it within that five-day window of symptom onset in which it's meant to be, or which it's thought to be most effective. But at the same time, and our colleague Edward Chen wrote about this in Stat this week, prescribers are desperate for more data on who is the best candidate for this drug, when they should take it, what to do uh, in cases of rebound, which is when people test positive after taking the medication. We need more data on how often that happens, who it happens to, what to do. We know what happened to Tony Fauci. There's not much else known about it. So everybody's kind of scrambling to best understand how to utilize this medicine that we know is powerful, but we don't exactly know just how powerful and in which cases it is best used. And of course, it still is in limited supply. My most certain uh, prediction for 2023 is that Meg will return to the podcast and we will be talking about COVID. By now, you've probably read countless observations that 2022 has not been kind to biotech. Stocks are down, public companies are struggling to raise money, and more than a few look unlikely to remain in business by the end of the year. But what about all of those high-flying venture capitalists who made enviable returns on the unicorns of yesteryear? Our colleague Allison DeAngelis talked to a bunch of them for a story in Stat this week, and she joins us now to relate their many anxieties. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Allison, what is the mood out there among the venture capitalists? I think that the mood is a little bit of a, a reckoning with the events of the last couple of years. It's been a very, very, very good fundraising environment, you know, in, in 2020, 2019, and into 2021. And now that gluttony is kind of coming back um, and and hitting them a little bit. They're having to, to deal with that as really the, the avenues for capital um, start to change and in some cases dry up. So as you pointed in the story, 
a lot of this seems to come down to the IPO window. IPOs are key for venture capitalists to be able to return cash to their investors by taking public these private companies they invest in. And in 2020 and 2021, that window was wide open. It now seems effectively shut with a few uh, exceptions. How does that affect the VC business? Of course, it's it hugely affects the VC business. IPOs are the main way that biotechs, that private biotechs make money for their investors at the end of the day is by going public and giving investors you know, an opportunity to kind of recoup their money and plus a little bit more. And the IPO window essentially closing um, or being shut quite a bit combined with the fact that there's really not a lot of M&A happening to this day is really, you know, hurting those late stage investors. And that's what I expected to hear when I started working on this story. But I think what's also interesting is the way that it is rippling further back into the private markets than I would have anticipated, in part because the really poor stock market in general is making a lot of the, the hedge funds the general investors that hand their money over to VCs rethink where they're allocating their money. And so that is kind of impeding companies and impeding investors on the earlier stages of financing because they see that their LPs, their limited partners, are having to change where they're putting their money. And that kind of raises a question of how and when VCs are going to be able to raise their next fund. Well, everything has gone south for biotech in 2022. A lot of these major VC funds raised just record amounts uh, of money when things were going well, as you mentioned. Can they just hunker down and, and wait for a rebound? In some cases, they probably could, depending on, on the terms and you know, what they've promised their their investors on the, the front end. But I think that the the reality is that a lot of these VCs still need to, you know, make those dollars work for them. And it's really coming down to a question of making really smart investments and kind of questioning investments more than they used to. I've, I've run into a lot of instances while reporting this story of companies saying that they were in talks with the VC. They were, you know, getting ready to put the term sheet together. Things were all set. They had a lead investor and the investor pulled out at the last minute. Or, you know, term sheets are being really whittled down. You know, the, the sizes of the rounds are being reduced or deals are just falling apart as, you know, during the negotiation process. And I think that that's a reflection of VCs being a little bit more skittish with where their money is going because we just don't know when that that next fundraise is going to be a reality and what it's going to look like. During the course of your reporting for the story, how willing are venture capitalists, uh, biotech startup CEOs and the like, willing to kind of talk about the difficulties that they're, that they're facing in this financing environment, particularly when it comes to the potential for down rounds, you know, where a company's valuation might be pretty lofty a few years ago. And then when they go out to raise another round of money, you know, maybe because they couldn't IPO, the, the valuation takes a cut. Is that something that people are openly discussing? Yeah, it is. It's reached the point where that is just a reality that is out there, that is it is unavoidable. I think back at the start of the year, there was kind of a theory, you know, a, a mysticism around the idea that, oh, down rounds could happen. And during the reporting of this story, 
it just became fact of nature that down rounds are absolutely happening right now. Now, the specific examples are a little trickier. Um, you know, p- people don't really want to disclose where their valuations have, you know, taken a hit, um, either in their investment portfolio or from their individual company. I was more able to find companies um, like Crea Therapeutics, where one of their investors told me that they were able to do actually a modest up round because they were much more um, conservative with the the valuation for their Series B, I think the year prior. And so when they went to raise the Series C, which is really that tricky point this year, um, that late stage capital, they were actually to get a modest step up in their valuation because they were more conservative. But I think it's it's fact that's undeniable at this point that down rounds are happening in the biotech world. So there are a lot of great details in your story. And one that stuck out to me came from Otello Stampaccia of the biotech VC Omega. He cited an interesting statistic, which is that according to his tally, about 85% of biotech investors out there right now have been working in the field for fewer than 10 years, which is to say they maybe experienced a few relatively minor corrections, but they weren't around for the bad old days of the early 2000s and the the bursting of the genomics bubble. I was curious, how might that affect the reaction to this correction, or if that's maybe too weak a term, but like, how does that affect sentiment when there's maybe not as much experience out there as there once was? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty easy to say that that hugely affects sentiment. And that's something that Atello talked about during our conversation, that a lot of the investors that we have working in biotech these days are a little green to the trials and tribulations of this industry. And and many of them have really come on during the good times of biotech. Essentially, you know, for the last, you know, five years or so, this this correction, this, you know, downturn that we are experiencing is really hitting them hard. And I think one of the questions that I walked away from the article with and 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 hopefully gave readers a sense of something to look at is how these young investors and also these young firms, these new VC firms that have kind of come out of the works in the last, you know, five years and are maybe only a fund or two into their lifespan, how they're going to be able to ride this wave is an open question. And I've heard fear from some of them that this is really their their trying point. There were some that I've talked to who said, if we can make it through the next you know couple of years, if we can make it through this downturn, we'll be fine. But the question is now, can we do this? And it's going to be a real test for some of them. After your story ran, Atlas Venture VC Bruce Booth uh, published something of a rebuttal on his blog. Uh, and his basic point was that, you know, yeah, things are bad compared to uh, the past couple of years. But if you zoom out, this is still pretty much the best time in history uh, to be in biotech. And the fact that VCs have a bunch of money uh, basically means that deals are still getting done and will still get done. Um what was your reaction to Bruce's blog post? Is he right? Was he blowing smoke? Uh, what were your thoughts on that? I think that Bruce is speaking from the Atlas perspective. Atlas is a seasoned firm that's been around for years. They have a pretty dedicated base of investors and LPs. Those are the firms, those are the type of firms that I don't think are going to run into the same troubles as these novice firms that I mentioned earlier. And certainly, you know, between Atlas and we saw about a week or two ago, Third Rock raised a new fund. It was one of their biggest funds ever. 
they're, they're doing okay. And actually, when I spoke to the team at Third Rock, they had said that they've even noticed from their LP base um, some disgruntlement that their LPs keep on getting hit up for money more and more. Um, Third Rock was pretty you know, stayed in its approach that they only raise money every three years. And they said that their LPs appreciated that. So these these seasoned firms who kind of have a classic playbook that they've worked out, you know, I think that they'll they'll be just fine. And for a lot of them, they're creating the startups that they're investing in. So they are really able to, you know, write the terms as they want. Now, for the startups that are out there that are not coming out of an incubator, not coming out of a VC firm, and are trying to navigate the capital markets on the private side, there's a real question whether they're going to be able to raise money in the future and and what those terms look like. And if they're going to end up with terms that they regret later, you know, if they're going to end up with investors that maybe aren't the best investors for them simply because they just need to get the capital there. And I had I had spoken to one, you know, early stage CEO, his name is Nicholas Tillmans over at uh, Anagenics. And he said that all of all of his friends and colleagues in the industry, none of them, not a one of them is having an experience raising money right now that is anything but difficult. And he acknowledged that that's often the case when, you know, you're a first time CEO, or, you know, you're raising your Series A round, it's usually difficult. But this year really stands out. It's really notable. So I think that we are going to see little ripple effects of this this fundraising cycle for years in the types of, of deals that get worked out, the syndicates of investors and you know the board members that get put together in these years, and the startups that unfortunately just aren't able to raise the capital that they need. So I was curious, what do people think happens next? Are VCs accepting this as something of a new normal? Or is there an opinion that things might eventually go back to like the heady days of 2021? What's sort of the the game plan for these people going forward? I think most of the VCs, at least that I've spoken to, are in agreement with something that Atello said to me during our conversation, which is really that this is a much needed correction. That we we got valuations got too lofty in 2021 and 2020. Um, you saw a lot of new money enter the field um, from generalist investors, from you know, I mean, venture capital loves to the more traditional biotech venture capital loves to kind of. Um, give their opinion on, you know, some of the more traditional tech investors getting into the field that reached new heights in the last couple of years. Um, So this is almost a a leveling of the playing field in their minds that this is something that needed to happen. After we work through this question of when the IPO window is going to open up, I, I get the sense, I expect that we will in many ways return to business as normal. The real question now is just when is when is that going to happen? How long are we going to go through this correction? There are some VCs that were saying, oh yeah, we're just we're kind of holding off everything until, you know, hopefully 2023 things start to level out. But that's really anybody's anybody's guess at this point when things start to level out and this correction cycle ends. I really hope that the days of the preclinical IPO and the hype line uh, are over. They probably they probably are not over, and we'll probably see more of those. But you know, I can dream. Allison, thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like, and whether Bruce Booth is telling the truth or blowing smoke. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Man, I'm all discombobulated now. It feels I, very you know, strange. Yeah. <laughs> the outro is all changed up. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it feels like playing dress up. <laughs>